folklore, the beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In today's programme, I'd like to examine some of the roles undertaken by people who follow what is generally termed to be a traditional pathway within witchcraft. We can apply various other terms to these people, a cunning man, a wise woman, a wayside witch or a healer, for example. Now in particular, I'd like to look at the similarities and differences between people working in centuries past and people practising today. Before we launch into the topic of traditional witchcraft itself, it is necessary to briefly mention disciplines. I am not a scientist. Nor am I either an historian or an anthropologist. I am also not a practising witch in any of its forms. However, as a caveat, I do have more than a passing interest in all of those fields. What I am is a folklore researcher and writer, or if you prefer the term, a folklorist. This inevitably means that some people in other disciplines will not favour either my methodology or my sources. However, I make no apologies for that, because I believe that data collected by folklorists is as valuable as that written by people in other disciplines and provides just as legitimate an insight into the past. There are people who practice the craft and firmly believe in its efficacy. Conversely, we have people who denounce such things as being as much hokum as Phineas Barnum's mermaid. To quote a phrase, however, there are three sides to every story. Yours, mine, and the truth. The folklorist is not concerned necessarily with hard data and evidence. Consider ghosts and paranormal research, for example. This is the search for evidence to prove or disprove, depending on which side of the fence you sit, the existence of such things. As a folklorist, I am not so much concerned as to whether or not ghosts exist. What I am interested in is why people report certain experiences with them and why similar stories travel, for example, or why accounts change over time. So, there is one thing that this examination is not. It is not a discussion on whether the practices of traditional witchcraft work or do not work. That is a debate for elsewhere, and one that people are more than welcome to have. This, rather, is an examination of the law of traditional witchcraft, the ways that the craft is thought of and practised, and whether or not this has materially changed over the last 200 years or so. 
that is the first definition of terms. The second distinction which needs to be drawn is that of the type of witchcraft we are examining, and any changes relating to this. Traditional witchcraft is very much distinct, for example, from Gardnerian Wicca or other neo-pagan types of religious witchcraft. So what we are not looking for here is evidence of how traditional witchcraft has somehow morphed into Wicca or similar practices. Essentially, because it hasn't. They are separate entities. We are also not looking for some method of tracing provable histories back through time in order to show some kind of legitimacy in current practices. Helen Cornish, lecturer in History and Anthropology at Goldsmiths College, has written an excellent article on this theme, Cunning Histories, Privileging Narratives in the Present, which I would recommend anyone to read if they're interested in that subject. Although I do draw information from Helen's research, I'm not looking at the same themes in this case. My sources, typically for folklore research, are a mix of both written documentation and field research. I have drawn from Helen's work, and also that of another folklorist, Steve Patterson, within this examination. For the field research in this case, I have interviewed a traditional witch, or more accurately a pelar, but I'll come to that shortly, Gemma Gary. Gemma has written a number of fascinating books on the field in which she operates. For a broad description of what traditional witchcraft actually means, I'd like to turn first to another practitioner, Sarah Ann Lawless. She notes that in our modern times, when people first come to the subject of traditional witchcraft, they tend to associate it with certain names, such as Robert Cochran or Mike Howard, because these people have written extensively on the subject. But she goes on to note that traditional witchcraft does not relate to one tradition as such, but should be seen as more of an umbrella term rather like pagan, which addresses a number of areas both cultural and in terms of actual practice. So we are not looking at what witchcraft may have been like in the past, but what it was like, with the support of surviving documents or oral law. Sarah also goes on to note, interestingly, that most traditional witches don't tend to read pagan books, but rather literature on anthropology, archaeology, history or religion we should probably use one final definition of terms and look at what I am terming traditional witchcraft for the purpose of this analysis. For this examination, we should take traditional witchcraft in the sense of those sorts of areas of the craft which would have been practised by what historically would have been termed either a wise woman, a cunning man or a wayside witch, or also, to use the term which applies to Gemma, my interview source, a pella. The historical folklorist Bill Painter described the Pellars as do-gooders or white witches. The etymology of the term itself is not known for certain, but it is probably a contraction of repeller. Because the Pellar works to heal rather than to harm, they would be able to offer a lot of protective magic, and this could explain this particular theory. In fact, it is within terminology that we may find one difference between witchcraft practices a hundred or more years ago and now. In the 21st century, the terms black and white witch are no longer really acceptable to practitioners, but this was not the case in 19th century Britain, where they were often very firmly applied. As an aside, this issue of terminology leads us to consider a similarity between the use of language and semantics in the old witches and in more modern times. Dr Thomas Quiller Couch, writing in the 1860s, notes the oracular ambiguity of statements made by conjurers, 
He cites an example where, in response to an inquiry about the disappearance of some household objects, the conjurer replies, Our horn eat own corn. What this means is still open to debate some 150 years later, but it puts me in mind of modern fortune tellers or newspaper astrologers who are able to produce one prediction fits many responses. Gemma explains that the Pelar uses an old craft side of witchcraft which is very much operative. She described it in her book as practical get-things-done magic. The Pelar uses charms and substance-making techniques, and their magic is very much imbued with the identification of local godforms, as well as charms which include extracts from the psalms and the like. Although Gemma also works with a coven at times, the more traditional role of the Pelar is as an individual practitioner, the wise woman or cunning man, or as Cecil Williamson termed them, the wayside witch. For example, Gemma told me that she had recently done healing work for a number of people. Also, the residents of a local farmhouse had wanted a charm made for protection against thieves because things were being stolen. Gemma had made a traditional charm using a psalm and an inscribed charm parchment, which is now hung up in the farmhouse. The roots for this type of practice are very old indeed. Steve Patterson notes that the Pellar-type methodology goes back at least as far as the Classical period. In the Greco-Roman period, the magic was known as defixio, and used written or inscribed charms which would bind the receiver to a particular event. This could be either for good or for ill, although more generally traditional witchcraft is the former. So the work of people such as Pellars and the like is predominantly a service working for people, a service type of craft. It isn't just the spiritual or devotional side of witchcraft. The practical operational side is very much tied in with the term Pella, or with the traditional aspect of witchcraft. Owen Davis, writing in 2003, notes that historically the term cunning folk describes those who had expert knowledge of folk magic and practised divination, healing, theft detection and astrology. The same term is used by modern magic practitioners to include all those who use folk magic beyond everyday domestic needs. Cunning in this case, of course, comes from the medieval usage of meaning knowledgeable rather than devious or the like. Gemma cited an example of a male witch who ran the group with whom she initially worked when she was exploring the craft. He was asked for help to find a lost dog, and for this he used a hagstone a small stone with a natural hole in the centre. He would whisper things through the hagstone, requests, over and over again, repeated magical acts to bring the dog back. And, sure enough, the dog came trotting back home. Whether this is due to the magical act, of course, is a subject rich in possible debate, depending on your outlook and beliefs. But, as I said earlier, it is not a debate that I'm looking to explore here. Now, historically, the role of this service-driven craft would have been considered a mainstream service. When wise women, cunning men and the like were at their height, they would have been the go-to person for many things – disputes, thefts, illnesses, births and so on. Now, of course, people will naturally go to a doctor if they're ill, to the hospital if they're having a baby, or to the police if something is stolen. In many cases, wise women, etc., would have been held with the same respect that mainstream services are today. Accounts of famous folk magic practitioners such as Tammy Blee in Cornwall, for example, tell of people queuing up and down the block. So it certainly wasn't something that happened in the shadows. 
people were often not ashamed to be seen to be consulting Tammy or her like. Nowadays it is far less likely that people would be announcing that they're going to see the local witch or Pellar to sort their problem out. The same sorts of techniques were practiced by proponents of traditional witchcraft methods in the 18th and 19th centuries, and indeed they still are used today. So, if you refer to the now and then angle of this episode title, now is very much as then in that respect. Of course, the views of these people have shifted significantly over time in some ways. Bill Painter notes that one famous Cornish wizard attended the law courts at Bodmin and undertook to keep witchcraft off farms for a shilling a year, and in additional guarantee no further trouble. Now this is certainly not something you would find happening in the same way now. Admittedly, some police do choose to use alleged psychics from time to time, in murder investigations which are going cold, for example. But this would be to give suggestions to follow up where they could look for evidence which would be admissible in the courtroom. By its very nature and definition, traditional witchcraft methods have not varied greatly over time. In fact, they are probably the one constant between the historical Pella or traditional witch and the modern one. This fact is interesting in itself, of course, when you consider that the most common and usual way of passing on the skills of traditional witchcraft is through oral transmission. Helen Cornish remarks that many newer practices try to legitimise claims for historical validity in their craft, blurring the lines between history and myth to do so, and trying to draw on documentation or records to prove their case. But she goes on to note that you do not find these sorts of claims in folk magic, because the knowledge is passed on through oral tradition. The practice is old and established, and the cunning folk, often solitary, simply do not need to stake a claim to anything. The Museum of Witchcraft and Magic provide the following quote, Other than court confessions and trial documents, little is recorded of the village wise women and cunning men that were the predecessors of modern witchcraft, and were an essential part of village life. That last remark, an essential part of village life, hints at a marked difference between traditional witchcraft a couple of hundred years ago and that of today. And that is simply the propensity of it. There were far more pellars or other users of folk magic, and they were far easier to find if you needed them. Folklorist Bill Painter again writes, There were witches in almost every village, shunned and dreaded by some who feared their supposed power to ill-wish those who offended them and sought out by others who wanted their aid to avert the evil eye, or by their magic to remove spells already cast on them or their cattle by an ill-wisher who had overlooked them. So, it is obvious that belief in the power of witchcraft, both traditional or otherwise, was far more common in the 18th and 19th centuries than it is now. Painter's method of the evil eye is an interesting one that we can draw on to show how belief diminishes. Clergyman the Reverend R. S. Hawker, commentating in the 19th century, tells us that two-thirds of the total inhabitants of Tamar side, and that means one side of a major West Country river, believe in the power of the Malocchio, as the Italians name it, or the evil eye. Now, even compared to the number of Americans who claim to have been probed by aliens, this is a significant number. You would be hard-pushed now to find any area of the country where the general belief levels were so high. 
It was the fact of the widespread belief in witches, and in particular in their power to work maleficium, being uppermost in the minds of the population in the 18th or 19th centuries, that really accounts for the widespread support of cunning folk at these times. In more modern times it is less the belief in maleficium, and more the wish for healing work that takes people to those who practice these traditional techniques. Not exclusively even now, of course, because people still find concealed objects, such as shoes or mummified cats, under the floorboards of old properties, and choose to rebury them. Others still hang witch bottles in their window or over the front door. Like horseshoes, of course, this is often done as a custom or superstition rather than because of a true belief in the likelihood of invasion by evildoers, but not in every case. Season 1, Episode 3 of the Folklore Podcast, entitled Concealed Revealed, featured an interview with researcher Kerry Holbrook about these objects that were buried or hidden within properties in times past, and where the practice still takes place today. And you can still hear that episode on our website. The amount of people that would think that if you had a problem you would automatically seek a magical solution are far less than the people in the past who would have thought along those lines. Today people will tend to seek more mundane ways of sorting out their problems. Fortune telling, through astrology and the like, is of course still big business, as are alternative forms of healing. But these angles are slightly different to the work undertaken within the sphere of traditional witchcraft. And what is the reason for this significant shift in belief over time? Should we put it down to that most provable of effects, science? Bill Painter certainly thought so, and went so far as to suggest that witch belief in its traditional form was gone forever, blaming the scientist's wand. I think, however, that this takes it a little too far. There is no evidence to suggest that traditional witch belief is gone forever, just that it is much diminished. Now I put this point to Gemma during the course of our interview, playing devil's advocate and asking her to essentially tell me her counter-arguments against the scientific establishment who would argue that witchcraft just isn't feasible. She told me that for her personally, she simply wouldn't do it if it didn't seem to work. She admitted that she didn't know whether the cause of the magic working was placebo in many cases or not, but when I asked her whether it mattered, she told me that it didn't to her. To quote from her interview transcript, I'm perfectly happy to use cars. I don't give a damn how they work. I don't know how they work. I don't want to know how they work. It's just like that with this. Gemma goes on to highlight the fact that we are obviously living in a very different society now than from that of the mid-1880s. Although we are far more scientifically aware, she says, people do still seek resolutions or services, or the aid of the spiritual side of things. People do still go to church and sit and pray for things. At the same time, these people are very scientifically aware. Yet somehow this is more acceptable. She points out that there are a lot of people in quantum physics, for example, who are practising magicians as well. This relationship between magic and science, then, is another area which is shifting over time, although maybe in this case it is shifting in more than one direction. Gemma suggested to me that in the early days of science it was very tightly bound with magic, the alchemists and the astrologers with the astronomers and the chemists, and then the two fields seem to part ways. But, she argues, with the emergence of chaos theories, the two seem to be merging more once again. In Gemma's opinion, science is unveiling the ways in which existence and the universe are very strange and odd, and further that we don't understand a lot of it or how it works. 
She suggests that maybe people are coming to more spiritual ways of looking at things in tandem with the way science examines events. I asked her whether she felt that perhaps magic and science had been intrinsically linked all along, but now that science was advancing further into strange discoveries of this weird stuff happens, it's being drawn more closely together. She believes that there was probably a fear of being open about looking at things in that way. 150 or 200 years ago, people were a lot less coy or reserved about visiting someone who provided help using folk magic, whereas today is likely to be much more of a veil of secrecy about doing so. Gemma extrapolates the same view to some areas of scientific discovery, citing an example of a scientist that she heard about who works in the field of quantum strangeness. When he was first studying, he would not reveal that side of his work. He would do the very normal coursework elements, but would not give away anything about the quantum research until he had got his grades. There certainly seems to be more openness in the scientific community in modern times to saying, we don't know about things. In the past, scientists were people who didn't like to say that they didn't know, says Gemma, but now we hear scientists saying that things are weird or strange, that they don't understand them, but that that is what makes them amazing. We have highlighted already that there is a significant difference between past and present in the prevalence of people who practice traditional witchcraft techniques as a service, and also that these services were more accessible in the past. So how are they accessed now, and what are the differences in the ways that Pellars and traditional witchcraft users provide operative help to people who ask for it? It was certainly the case in the past that practitioners were able to earn a living from providing magical help to people, but this is less likely to be the case in modern times in the case of traditional witchcraft. There are still practitioners, but it is unclear how regular their work is. Gemma herself still practices, but no longer advertises her services, working now only for family and friends, or people who are referred to her via that route. She did used to advertise at one time, but certainly never made a living from that side of her work. This notion of advertising is an interesting one. In the 18th and 19th centuries, there would often be a cottage at the end of the village and everyone knew that was where you went in order to seek help from the pelar or witch. In the past, the whole operation was very much undertaken with information transmitted through word of mouth. There is still an element of this in more modern times, particularly among the magical community where names get passed in this way and recommendations made, but this is no longer the most common way of finding help if you need to seek it out. This method of transmission has naturally been surpassed in the main by the internet, email and social media. People are now easily able to spread information about services offered and found, but are also able to spread their experiences of people from whom they've received help. It doesn't quite stretch as far as a rating system, but there is maybe a corner of the market open for anyone who would like to establish which advisor. So, the essence of the term community for the traditional witch has now extended to become a global community instead of a local one in many ways. When Gemma was working for clients, it was the case that some would come to her locally by word of mouth, but by far and away the majority would be people who she would never know or indeed ever meet. In traditional witchcraft, this is not too much of a problem, of course. Much of the help provided is charm-based, which can be made and sent on to do its work. And indeed, throughout history, much healing magic has been and continues to be done at a distance. There are even instances of practitioners carrying out wart charming and other similar forms of healing via the telephone. 
In modern times, there is probably an increased level of trust over historical use of traditional witchcraft. It was the case that you went to a member of your local community who was, depending on the beliefs of the people in that community, either shunned or trusted that they were the right person to go to. If they didn't prove to be the right person, then they would not last long within the framework of that community in which they lived. But now, with the global and online communities, you run the risk of contacting people who can hide more behind anonymity, evade shunning, the modern equivalent of which would be bad reviews, or may not even actually either know what they're doing or profess to be what they are at all. Some will argue that this refers more to the neo-pagan practitioners than it does to traditional witches, who don't tend to use the same style of advertising or touting for business. Now, I am not making that suggestion to reassure anyone who follows any of these paths. There are good and bad practitioners on every path. To quote Gemma, I have looked on the internet and you do see websites with people offering spells and they're charging thousands of pounds and they've got some weird name like Unicorn Dragonfart or something and no photographs of them so you don't get to know who the person is. Gemma went on to suggest that perhaps people are more trusting of websites where they can actually see who the person is and they keep a blog so that people can read what they're up to. Now this in itself is very trusting and probably slightly naive. Anybody can, and people frequently do, set up a website pretending to be someone or something that they are not, and if you never deal with the person face to face, then you would really be none the wiser despite there being a blog or a photo. It may help the client to be more trusting, but it doesn't make the practitioner any more genuine. Technology, then, can be seen as both a hindrance and a help to the traditional witch. It can be a hindrance because it probably waters down any perceived genuineness about the practitioner. But, of course, it can also be a help in terms of both ease of contact and also for the provision of goods as well as services, and these can either be to other witches or to clients. Sarah Ann Lawless, for example, who I cited earlier, runs a very successful online shop for ointments, remedies and other traditional objects. If you go back to, for example, the 1800s, there was a traditional way of working, and the term traditional witchcraft summons up that traditional way of working. Now, though, you have a choice of whether you go to somebody who professes to be Wiccan or professes to be any one of a number of modern witchcraft strands, for want of a better term. Now, I made the point at the start of this discussion that we are not considering an evolution of traditional witchcraft into these other types. It is certainly the case that at the start of the 20th century, the rise of the spiritualist movement led to the development of these new paths, Alongside this, it may perhaps appear that the traditional witch is turning into these newer types. Indeed, Helen Cornish makes the point that the history of witchcraft is very much contested and that some witches are intent on trying to prove some historical lineage from the old witches. Similarly, with the enormous rise of Wicca and other similar religion-based forms of devotional witchcraft, there are aspects which seem to emerge from the work of the wayside witch. But it is not the case that traditional witchcraft has evolved into any of these. Rather than, it has coexisted in its own quiet way in the background, being less self-effacing and fussy than some other types. Steve Patterson notes that the art of cunning and spellcraft seems to have passed into the hands of ceremonial magicians and their country cousins the neo-pagans, but, ironically, it is through the latter that a revival of the old Pellar tradition has re-emerged. Gemma Gary explains the difference between types of practice like this. I suppose people working within a Wiccan framework, probably drawing upon group energy. 
They are very much geared to raising energy through dancing and directing it. It's all about power and focus, whereas people working from what's come to be known as traditional witchcraft tend to work more with spirits and the land, virtues of the land, and are probably more inclined to work with grimoires and things they would take from grimoires. As I said earlier, traditional witchcraft tends to be more of a solitary practice than a group one, but the two are not mutually exclusive. It is perfectly possible to use elements from either which work for the individual. Gemma does both solitary work and work with a coven, so she describes herself as having a merged background of both Wiccan and traditional techniques. This act of working with the land and its virtues is certainly still of relevance within traditional witchcraft, and also moves across firmly into folklore records and customs as well. It is common in folklore, being cited by Robert Hunt and others, that one could become a witch by interaction with the landscape, for example the Giant's Rock or Loganstone at Zena in Cornwall. Gemma was also aware that there was stuff from the past in the background when she was looking into the craft. She recalls that her parents used to take her out to the Menon Toll and other geological features and tell her that they were said to be for healing back pains and the like, and that people would use pins on them for divinatory purposes. There is, of course, much folklore around such geological features, which has roots way back in these areas. There are still stones, for example, where people will pass a baby through a central hole for good luck. This would be a practice continuing in folklore from such things as the midwifery angle of the wise woman or Pella. This route would be lost on many people, of course. They would just know that it was said to be good luck to do it. By the same token, certain structures in the landscape are still used for healing purposes. These traditional ways and beliefs are still found then in the modern day. So where does that leave us? What are the differences and similarities between traditional witchcraft practices and practitioners now and then? I think the predominant view here is essentially that the differences are nowhere near as far-reaching as most people imagine them to be, providing that you stick within the terms of traditional witchcraft itself and accept that it is distinct from the more spiritual and devotional forms of the craft that have developed in the modern day. These have gone a long way to remove the traditional practitioner from the public gaze, but they have not materially changed that practitioner's work, nor have they either replaced it or developed from it. The skills of the wise woman, cunning man, wayside witch or Pella have not altered hugely over time because the nature of the craft is that it is traditional, it is not historical witchcraft, which many people mistake it for. The very term traditional, from the linguistic root tradere, means transmitted. In other words, the law and practices have been passed on over time, being reworked very little in real terms. It is the case that belief in the powers of the wayside witch have diminished and are not so commonly found in modern times, at least not out in the open as they would have been in the 18th or 19th centuries. Many people will not openly admit to beliefs in these areas for fear of ridicule. Much of the modern folklore movement, and in this case we should take the term modern to mean from the middle of the 20th century, was the domain of the Christian middle classes, many of whom would have been keen to promote the idea that witch beliefs were, and very much are, extinct. They are not. Farming families in the southwest where I come from still pay local practitioners today to protect their land and livestock from harm both from this world and the other world. People still consult with the wise folk to have curses removed or for healing. Gemma Gary, in her book on traditional witchcraft, even cites the example of a Penzance estate agency 
who called in the services of a local wise woman to help to sell a particularly troublesome house. Possibly one aspect that has changed over time in the use of the services of the folk magic practitioner, however, does seem to be that people now rarely request the identity of an ill-wisher to be divined. They are still happy to ask to have a curse that they believe that they are under lifted, but they do not wish to know the source of that curse in the first place. One wonders whether this has as much to do with the increasingly Americanized lawsuit culture as anything else. I'm not sure that injury lawyers for you yet branch out into the field of curse-inflicted ailments, but there's still time. There is not even as big a shift as people imagine into the pre-made spells or remedies that are available to buy, or the books on the subject. It was always the case that the traditional witch would sell such items, and also that they would consult texts. There is, of course, a difference in both the type of text available to the practitioners and the variety. The grimoires of the 19th century have been replaced in the main by the books on love magic and the like, so there is certainly a wealth of printed material available for people interested in the subject, or people who want to try their hand at what they believe to be magic. But the old texts and lore are still available to the modern practitioner of traditional techniques through more esoteric publishing routes. Folk magic, to quote Helen Cornish, is viewed as a timeless and unchanging practice that implicitly entails continuity. It is in the ways that these practices are presented, located and accessed where we see the most significant changes, not in the practices themselves. Traditional witchcraft is likely to remain traditional for a long time to come. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird. <laughs>